Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. We help business creators like you win at the game of business and marketing so you can thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and make a difference for your community, market, and audience. Please take a moment and visit our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. You will find hundreds of episodes covering a breadth and depth of topics relevant to you as a business creator and links to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. And now let's get started. My name is Adam Homie. I am your host. I am honored by your wise decision to tune in and invest in yourself today. We are going to cover a topic that some will say with the global pandemic and everything else that shifted over the course of 2020, a relevant topic more than ever before. I argue it's always been relevant, but current events have just simply brought it into sharper relief because we've had changes to our lifestyles. You are going to absolutely love and enjoy who we have with us today. His name is John Meese. He's the Dean of Michael Hyatt's Platform University. We would love to have Michael Hyatt on the show here. In fact, that's one of our goals. Right now, we're happy to have someone who works with John Meese, uh, or rather, rather Michael Hyatt. John Meese works with Michael Hyatt. You can see my excitement about this. Let me just tell you a little bit about John, just for starters. He leads a team focused on simplifying online marketing for professionals and runs three successful businesses, including a co-working space that is walking distance from his house. John's passion is teaching entrepreneurs and busy professionals how to systemize their business and build an engaged online audience. John Meese, come on in. The weather's fine. Hey, Adam. Thanks for having me so much. I, I'm glad to be here. Even though I'm not Michael Hyatt, I have been referred to as Michael Hyatt Jr. Based on the <laughs> I play. Oh, that's, that's awesome. Hey, you know what? We'll take it. So before we dive in, and we have a lot to speak about today, and I know we have some listeners leaning in, opening separate browser tabs, and those who have not heard of Michael Hyatt or Michael Hyatt's Platform University may be right now binging the Yahoo out of the Googles to discover more about what that is. They may also be looking up John Meese, whose last name is spelled M-E-E-S-E. -E -E. You're welcome. He has his own website as well. In fact, the websites are platformuniversity.com and johnmeese.com, so you can get to know the platform and the man if you choose to do so. Before... We get into our topic. John, if you could just tell us a little bit about your story and what's brought you here to where you are today serving business creators from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion, making a difference for your community market and audience. Well, thank you, Adam. I'd be happy to. I think, um, well, let's see where I got here. Well, there, was a, there were a lot of steps and they weren't necessarily all in a straight line. Um, but I can back up to say that I actually... Um, when I came out of college and I was working for a nonprofit and then I was working as a training director for Chick-fil-A for some time, then I was really trying to figure out, you know, how to really rethink my career. I mean, I was really passionate about teaching people. I mean, I did that in training at Chick-fil-A and I did that uh, with my economics degree and working in an economics research center for a while. But I was, I really just wasn't satisfied with the options in front of me, which were like become a professor okay, the dream is tenure, you know, it wasn't very exciting, you know, like, or become a teacher, an underpaid teacher at a local school. So along came a guy named Michael Hyatt. And I um, actually, I came across his book platform, get noticed in noisy world. And no joke, I read it from cover to cover on a plane. And it was a number one New York Times bestseller when it came out in 2012. And it was this crazy idea at the time, 
was that you could build a platform. You could build a personal brand online and that could become your living. Well, today in 2020, we know that there are countless people who do this. But at the time, this was a crazy idea. Um, so I became a Platform University student myself, which was his membership site, is membership site focused on helping people actually put this into practice and do it. And I built my own blog. I built my own online course and coaching and affiliate income business. And that became my full-time income. I was actually able to, my wife was a teacher and I was able to retire myself as well as her. And then uh, Michael, I didn't know this, but Michael was actually watching. So he invited me out to lunch and said, hey, I've been watching what you've been doing and we want to be able to help more students have the same level of success, success that you did in terms of building an online audience and turning that into really making an income from your expertise. And so um, I did that. I said yes. And so three years later, here I am now running Platform University. Um, it's been a joy to do so and to continue to do so. And right now, what you and I are talking, Adam, we are seeing more engagement, more students digging in into our, inside of our membership site today than any time in the last five years because everybody suddenly realizes that before having a platform was nice, you know, it would be nice to have, and now it's a necessity. Right now in today's economic crisis, it's mandatory. Like if you don't have an, a digital way to make an income from your expertise, then you're left hanging out to dry, and that's not a good place to be. So that's where we are. That's what brought me here. That is a fantastic story. As we teach in my podcasters, excuse me, my podcast creators institute, uh, create an experience for your listeners that gives them aha moments they can write down. And I encourage all the listeners of the Business Creators Radio Show have a pad of paper and two pens to capture the aha moments. I actually captured an aha moment out of what you just said when you oh, yeah? told me that you read that book uh, on an airplane ride, cover to cover. One of the things we share is that when one of the things we, rather that I share, this is actually not directly from the Podcast Creators Institute, but this is an actually key thing. When you're creating a book, if you want your book to get consumed, particularly if it's a business book and you're looking to attract customers, prospects, and audience engagement, write something that can be easily and enjoyably read cover to cover in one decent airplane ride so that your reader loses himself in the enjoyment of immersing in the content so that the airplane ride goes by and they don't have to bookmark it on page 324. They can actually complete the book and have some ideas is the moment they jump off that airplane. So I wanted to share that. You also mentioned that you create a blog and I have blogs too, which is fantastic. When I created my book, Groundhog Day is an event, not a business strategy, which contains what I call the spring plat, the spring formula for optimizing your business, which is what we do at my Business Creators Institute. Uh, notice all these seeds I'm planting, by the way. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, that's for our listeners and, and for you as well. Uh, <laughs> one, of the, you know, one of the things that we advocate, if you want to create a book, write a blog. If you're looking to figure out what you really want to do in business, where your brilliance and your passion really is, not what your coach and mastermind say it should be, but where it really is, where you feel it viscerally, Start blogging. Just put up a very simple blog. Don't worry so much about your avatars or what your upsell is going to be. In fact, I recommend you do it separately from your primary website so you have the freedom to explore. And for 90 days, once per day, make a commitment and do it. Write about whatever in your industry or whatever work you're doing or want to do is exciting you, grinding your gears, burning your oatmeal, whatever it is. At the end of 90 days, go back, log into your blog, 
and reassign those posts into categories. Chances are you will have your book, aside well, from creating a story to put on top of it and adding your intro. I love that idea, Adam. And actually, you may not know this, but it's what you're, what you're what the advice you're giving is essentially how the book platform is written, which is, is a, I mean, first of all, I should say, you know, it's been a few years since the book came out. So it includes things that today might be revolution, right, might not be revolutionary. Like there's a whole chapter on how to create your Twitter profile for the first time, which at the time yeah. was still a big deal. But the book itself is, it, I just pulled it up to check. One of the reasons why it was such an easy read for me is there are 60 chapters, but each one of those chapters is just a couple pages long. And each of those, little insider tip, each of those chapters was actually originally a blog post on Michael Hyatt's blog. He took the blog posts, he fleshed them out and put it all together into a single cohesive narrative. And then he published it and that became a number one New York Times bestseller that's been translated into over 35 different languages. So there's uh -huh. something to be said there. Yeah, uh, my recommendation is a book should be fun to read. And you also keep in mind digital literacy. Remember back when we were in college, and since I know you do online education as well, you understand some of the importance of this. Remember back in college, and if you didn't go to college, maybe it was high school. Uh, if you were given assigned reading, you were responsible for the next class because it was going to be on a test or you had the chance there might be a pop quiz or whatever it is. And the night before when, let's be honest with ourselves, you were reading it, you, found, you opened your textbook, you found chapter 12, and before you started reading, you flipped through chapter 12. And if all you saw was small 10-point font Times New Roman with no subheaders, no breakdowns, no pictures, nothing like that, and it was these long paragraphs or almost as long as the pages without digital literacy, without bullet points, without short paragraphs, without things highlighted, did you find yourself already feeling tired even before you began reading it? And then once you began reading it, you noticed that you would have gone through about four or five pages and then thought to yourself, what the hell did I just read? I didn't pick up a word of that. Yeah, I think what you're, you know, what you're talking about is true in textbooks, but it's also true in, in content today. And it's, I actually have to remind, um, whenever we work with a new writer, I have to remind them that uh, the rules of grammar <laughs> offline are not the same as the rules of grammar online. It may have been that your English teacher, you know, in high school or college taught you that a paragraph is three to five sentences, not on the internet. A paragraph is one or two sentences, no more, because otherwise it just becomes someone just scanning through their inbox or they're scanning through your website. They see this big clump of text and they just leave. They don't read it. And because we, the internet is a world full of distractions. And so it's so easy to lose someone's attention and you have to always be focused on making sure that you're, you're getting straight to the point. Yeah, with a couple of my clients through the Business Creators Institute, uh, I, what I do is I translate their text for the internet. Uh, one of them has the training for writing articles for newsletters because that's the basis of his background. Another got his practical education in writing 30 years ago when the rules were somewhat different. Before we had computers the way we have them today, uh, you know, several in everybody's house, and before we had smartphones where people were reading entire books on a screen that's about the size of a cigarette pack, and <laughs> which you say is very important. So these clients will write the copy however they write it. And it normally comes out looking like long paragraphs or long sentences uh, or a sentence that has six different commas in it. And their job is to write and be creative. What I do is they will 
looking at it from their perspective, they'll see that article come out as a blog post, as, a, as an email or whatever it is, and now it's a bunch of short paragraphs with bullet points and all kinds of things in it. And they say, well, what happened to my article? And well, they don't say it anymore, but they did it first. And I said, you created the brilliance and I set it up so people would actually read it. Uh, we have to think about skimming behaviors and helping people zero in on what's most important. And particularly when it comes to online engagement, and I know we're getting to that any second now, these are key things. So I'm very happy for this opening discussion. But before we get into that, I have another question for you. And this has been on my mind ever since the green room. Why don't you have any social media profiles of your own? <laughs> okay, so um, I get this one a lot because it's like, okay, John, you teach people how to build their audience online and then you yourself don't have social media accounts. What gives? Um, well, to prove I'm not completely digitally illiterate, I did once upon a time have social media accounts. So I should say that first. So I've, I've yeah. been there, I drank the Kool-Aid and I decided it wasn't for me. But I've actually written on this because I knew as soon as I made this decision that I would sort of be on trial publicly for this decision. So I'll, I'll be happy to summarize my, my rationale, but I also wrote about this extensively on my blog. So you can just go to johnmeese.com slash social. And there's a whole article that talks about the two different arguments for why you maybe shouldn't have social media accounts. Maybe you should, but maybe you shouldn't. There's two arguments. One is your, for about personal use and one is about business. But since we're here to talk about marketing, um, I, I assume I should probably focus on the business argument. Would you like me to summarize that, Adam? You can do whatever you want. Okay. All right. Well, then I will. <laughs> okay. Well, I don't hear that enough. That's great. Um, well, I would say as far as the business argument, here's, here's what there is today. There is a visibility bias around social media. And I'll explain what I mean by that. If you today decide that you're either creating a new business or you want to grow your existing business and you think, okay, I want to grow my business. I want to get more customers. I want to make more sales. I want to get more people to follow me and like me and, you know, and in, in, be interested in my stuff. It's very natural to then just look around and say, okay, well, what's working, right? What are other people doing that's working? So if you look at five of your potential competitors or just other people you admire, your mentors maybe, the only thing you can see that they're doing in their business is what's happening on social media. So you can see them posting and you can see people liking and sharing, right? So you can see that's the, that all this activity on social media and you go, okay, well, I mean, it's, it's logical, right? Their business is successful. They're on social media and they're active there. Therefore, their business success must come from social media, right? And it's this visibility bias because that's what you can see. But what you cannot see, if you're on the outside looking at someone else's business, what you cannot see is how many people landed on their website from a Google search. What was that expression you used earlier, Adam? You said something, up, you combined Bing, Yahoo, and Google in a single sentence and it was wonderful. Binging the Yahoo out of the Googles. That way, right. in my writings, I don't have to tell you which one I prefer. <laughs> I love that. I'm going to probably steal that phrase. I hope that's okay. So it's, you, not you it's not trademark. Just do me a favor and don't trademark it yourself because I ain't going back no. and editing nothing. Oh, no problem. Yeah. All right. So if someone uh, is out there binging the Yahoo out of the Googles, did I get that right, Adam? I think yes, I Yes, you that. did. Congratulations. <laughs> so uh, then what you can't see is you can't see how many people are landing on someone's website from a search engine. You cannot see how many people are buying a product because a friend recommended it literally in person or in a text message. You can't see these conversations happening back and forth over email that are leading to sales and growth. There's so much you can't see. The only thing you can see from the outside, other than maybe that they have a website, 
is the activity in social media. And so it's not that social media is completely useless. I don't think it's completely useless. It has its purposes. But there is a very heavy visibility bias because it's so public, which means a lot of people are spending way too much time on social media and they're wasting their precious time and resources trying to build their business through social media. I think social media is appropriate if you have a strategy for how social media drives your business results, but it needs to have a specific reason. So social media without a strategy is a waste of time. And by strategy, I mean, are you using social media to grow your email list, to sell your products, to get in front of new audiences that you don't already have access to, or just to engage with your current audience and build some more trust and rapport with them? You need to have a strategy. And most people on social media, honestly, they don't. They just spend a lot of time there instead of spending time on important fundamental practices for growing their business. You know, we're getting a little bit into reader and viewer psychology here, which is exciting to me. Earlier in our conversation, I seemingly forgot to close a loop, but I actually left it open on purpose because I had a feeling we'd get back to it. When I mentioned the training we do for people who host podcasts and live streams inside my podcast creators Institute, where I was going with that theme is, and you also caught when I highlighted that I was doing what's known as seed-based marketing, inserting stuff about myself into the conversation. That's part of what we educate people on. One of the big objections I hear from business creators and entrepreneurs and companies that say that they don't want to host a podcast of their own, especially the type where they do interview formats, is they say, well, if I'm interviewing other people, that's not about my business. I'm highlighting them. The tactic that we share and inside my course there's examples of this and it gets into a lot greater detail the idea is to do it in a conversational format and also modify your own conversation style where you naturally and easily insert little tidbits about what you do i mean we're speaking about um online engagement i managed to mention that i'm an internationally acclaimed amazon best-selling author i told you what my book is about i told you what my business consulting firm does and i mentioned i do training and assisting with launching for podcasts and i managed to get that out in about two sentences without veering from your topic so my question for you is do those types of tactics also find relevance in helping people being more engaged with social media, and let me just break that out one step further. We've heard about the difference between the type of social media where you're, con- like let's say it's a corporate social media or a business social media, you're constantly sharing case studies, testimonials, snippets from your trainings, and thought wisdom, versus the type of social media where you let people see a bit of your personality, you get into pop culture and current events a little bit, and you create connections between the things that people are thinking about outside of your business to draw them into your business. Well, I think it's, pro- it's, I think it's important, Adam, to put social media in its proper place. And the reality is social media is still relatively new, right? So is the internet. Yeah. But people and how they relate to each other, that's been going on as long as we've been around. Well, long, as longer than you and I have been around, Adam, for a long time. People have been interacting with people. People have been doing business. People have been doing all of these things for a long time. So let's think about, okay, so where, does, how does, where else do you get the environment of human behavior that you get on social media outside of social media? And, and I think this is less so true today, but it's still been true for a long time, which is that the answer is coffee shops, pubs, bars. I mean, that's what social media is, right? It's a bunch of people hanging out in a common place, right? A common meeting place of some kind that's relatively relaxed, right? 
So what I encourage people to do is to think about, okay, well, would, would you walk into a coffee shop with a bunch of people around and say, hey, everybody, I got a case study. You should check out this case study. <laughs> you know, like you wouldn't do that. It just, it just wouldn't fit. However, if you were to walk in, I mean, and maybe there's a way for you to actually walk up to the counter, you're grabbing your coffee, you look around, the guys to your left are both talking about the fact that, you know, they run a business in your industry, right? So maybe, maybe they're talking about the fact that um, maybe there's a painting contractor right there talking to somebody else about his business and saying, you know what, man, you know, we've got a great team ready to go and we can go in and out of a house. We've got great testimonials, but I'm just trying to figure out right now how to get into, into front of more people in our town, right? I want to get in front of more people in our town. Well, that's a pretty natural place for you to come in and say, hey, but I just, I couldn't help but notice you were talking about how to get in front of the right people. And I just wanted to offer, I have this free training actually, which is all about that. So um, here's the free, here's the details. If you're interested, you know, sign up. That's a very natural conversational way to build a relationship in a coffee shop. And the same thing works on social media, but you shouldn't use social media to go actually sell your products. In fact, research shows that an email subscriber, a single email subscriber is 15 to 20 times more likely to make a purchase than a single social media follower. And that's because you're in the coffee shop. I mean, it's like walking in and be like, excuse me, does anyone need a consultant? I, I sell things. Would you like to buy my stuff? I love this analogy and I'm going to have to reference this episode in some of my later teachings because this is just so, so good. And I was, you heard me laughing out loud, the idea yeah. that somebody's going to walk into a coffee shop and say, Hey everybody, I have a case study. <laughs> And, and sadly, and sadly, I, you know, it seems like that's the case. And let's also yeah. draw the distinction between individuals who have social media accounts where those same individuals own companies that have their own social media accounts. And you really mm -hmm. need two different tones of voice there. Even if your business is branded after yourself, you still need two different tones of voice because your personal friend or personal connection is looking to connect with you personally. And you want them to get a sense of yeah. knowing, liking, and trusting you so that they consider reaching out to you. If they have also migrated over to following your company, or if they start by following your company and migrated over to you, remember that what they're doing following your company is they're looking to get more interested and educated in your topic. So you maybe. may, enjoy, maybe, you may, maybe, maybe, and I'm about to turn you loose on that. But bear in mind also that just in general, you may have the same person looking at two different profiles you control for two different reasons. So take well, it away with the maybe. Yeah, if I can provide a little bit of a just a little bit of a contrarian view on that, um, please. Yeah, that um, I, I've never been normal, so I'm just gonna go, gonna go with it. Is that um, the reality is, and I'm a little biased in this because we teach personal branding, but the yeah. reality is, I believe that the pe the person that follows your company is actually looking for this the same kind of relationship they they look they're when they're following you as a person. The problem is they don't expect to get it, right? Like if you follow yeah. the local garbage company on Facebook, you're expecting that this is going to be an inhuman relationship, right? You're expecting this to be sterile. Okay, that's a weird combination of the garbage company and sterile. But uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, that, that was unintentional. But you're expecting it to be kind of a sterile, formal relationship of them always talking to the third person. But that's not actually what you want, right? You want to talk to a person. You want to talk to a human being. And major companies, I mean, every big company in the world today spends millions of dollars on personalizing their company, right? They're trying to make their, yeah. make their brand feel personal, whether it's with a clever logo or a tagline or a really cool commercial. They're trying to make it feel personal. But the thing is, we were all born personal, right? We're persons. Yeah. So we have, this, we have this superpower 
And I would, I would always recommend somebody lead with that. If you can, you have to have a face um, that people can relate to. And that's far more important than having a clever name or a clever logo for your company. Correct. Um, I have a case study. <laughs> uh, first, before I get into it, and it's a very brief case study, let me mention that you're not weird. Everybody else is. They need to be normal like you. <laughs> Thank you. <Adam. laughs> that that's Thank the first you. item. I'll have to tell my mom. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to call yeah. my mom and let her know that's what that mom Adam said. It actually turns out that I'm normal. Yeah, yeah, yes, absolutely. Tell her I said hi. But anyway, um, here's a case study. Uh, this is a client that we worked with actually, actually that we still work with, and they were in that place when we first found them where they were in startup mode and they hadn't made, they hadn't crossed that Rubicon that I've identified in my book that moves you from being startup to being a business, which is very simply getting a customer to pay you to do something. So they're still in that startup and they still were working from what effectively is a blank slate because the slate, the slate in my opinion is still blank uh, for as long as you have an easy eraser and you haven't put it in front of anybody. So, Part of our initial work with them was to create systems and standards for their communications via email, their website, and their social media platforms. We got the pushback from them that they wanted their brand to, you know, be very professional, whatever that word means, and uh, and the owner of the business did not want her name associated with it, or because she said oh, everybody. Who people are looking for an institution. They're not looking for a person. We want to be like the Harvard Business Review. Well, let me begin by saying that I follow the Harvard Business Review because I think they have some good stuff. And I'm aware that all their articles are written by people. And yep. those people have backgrounds, personalities, levels of their own brilliance and passion that they bring to their work as contributors to the HBR. The second, and this is really where I'm going with this, is that we recognized and respected that she wanted her brand to have a very um, academic and, you know, to put in air quotes, professional feel to it. But putting her name as the sender of the emails and as the author of the articles put her in a position of being what I like to call the human figurehead of the business. So no, it wasn't her personal musings or anything like that, uh, but, it but it allowed the reader to see that there was a human being there. Here's, where, here's two places where it translates. Uh, we recommended when she began publishing white papers and creating opt-in forms and sequences so that people could get added to the list and download those white papers and tools and guides and such, that in the first email we sent out to them, that near the bottom of the email, it says something like, hey, I wanna ask you one favor. If you could please reply to this real quick and just type received or got it so that I know that we've fulfilled our promise to deliver this to you. And I got the pushback from her, her, her editor, uh, her copywriter, and a few other people of, oh, that's hokey pokey marketing stuff. Did you read that from Ryan Dice? And I said, yeah, actually, I got that from Ryan Dice's follow-up machine. What of it? <laughs> uh, and, uh, and then I said, you know what? Um, if, uh, if you uh, want to tell me, I, if you want to say I told you so after we try it, uh, I will sit there and listen for three hours while you tell me how much more you know about this than I do. But try it. And they set up their sequence and the emails did include that phraseology. And what was amazing is uh, they started getting the replies. Hey, there you are. How have you been? I remember you when we sat down uh, for a martini at such and such conference in 2011 or you know, I was just thinking about you recently and I was thinking it was time we caught up or, 
hey, uh, are you still doing that consulting work? I think I may have a lead for you. So, ha. I love that. I think yeah. another, yeah, I love that, Adam. It's a, it's a phenomenal case study. And did that play out any other like tangible success in their business that you can trace back to that decision? Oh, lots of it. Lots of it. I mean, uh, due to NDAs and such, I can't get too much sure. deeper than that. But what I wanted to do is illustrate the teaching principle that shows that even if you're looking to be academic or less revolved around a certain human being, placing a human figurehead on something allows people to recognize their ability to make a connection. Another place where this played out, I can tell you one more since I'm thinking of it, is the same client went to a conference a couple years ago and was not expecting the following thing to happen. She would have person after person after person in her industry coming up to her saying, hey, oh, you're the one that sends a newsletter. I love that newsletter. Because they wow. recognized her as the human figurehead behind that copy even though the newsletter that. itself is mostly a curated collection of articles and resources. I love that. Well, and I mean, like another example of that, Adam, is just, I mean, just, just to bring one more example to kind of like land this plane, if we can, in terms of driving this point home, is just that yes. let's, just, let's just say someone were to walk up to you or maybe you see a headline that says um, Berkshire Hathaway's advice. Well, that's kind of mildly interesting. But then all of a sudden, if the same person says Warren Buffett's advice, now all of a sudden it seems relatable. It seems immediately actionable. And most of us have heard of this guy, Warren Buffett, who seems to know a little thing about money. But Berkshire Hathaway's his company. I mean, he's the CEO. Like, that's his thing. Both of those names have authority. But Warren Buffett is just massively more immediately recognizable. That people, people know that as a, as a human being. And they want to know what Warren has to say. They kind of want to know what Berkshire has to say, but less so unless you are specifically investing through Berkshire Hathaway. Yeah, and what and, and one final point I make to that, and I know we're dying to get on to the next topic here, is you made the point just a moment ago that yes, Ber Berkshire Hathaway as a name, as a brand, has its own authority. At the same time, a big part of the reason why Berkshire Hathaway has that authority is because, is because it's Warren Buffett's thing. Many people heard about Warren Buffett first, then discovered his company, and then began to follow the company separately or in conjunction with him. Totally. Totally. Yeah. All right. So this is something that we were chatting about a little bit in the green room before we uh, came out to see our audience here. And I uh, said I'd ask it as a question if it came up. So here we go. We have had some big changes in the past few months globally, the pandemic and everything else. You've said that people are tuned into their social media more than ever before, perhaps. Maybe it's because they have nothing better to do. Maybe it's because they're no longer sitting in cubicles where IT is watching over their shoulder, so to speak. Uh, could be a lot of reasons, but the engagement is way up. So I'm gonna ask this question open-ended and let you take it away. Uh, what impact has this had on the importance of having an engaged online audience? Well, I think it's an important question, Adam. And I mean, really all I can do is speculate at this point because it's still early, but I can yeah. speculate from at least a position of having access to a lot of information and a lot of ex perspective and experience in this industry and being able to, you know, talk to 2000 of our students inside of Platform University and find out what, how, what they're experiencing in their industry as well. So it's not completely out of thin air, but I, but I, you know, of course, at this point, it's still uh, at a certain point, we're kind of figuring this out as we go, just like everybody yeah, else. Sure. But I think the biggest thing that's happened, and that's, I mentioned this earlier, is that right now versus what's changed right now versus six weeks ago or two months ago or three months ago 
is yeah. that last year, let's just go with last year, 2019, having a platform like a blog or a vlog, you know, like a YouTube channel or a podcast, having an email list, those were all nice things that you could have, right? If you're in business selling your own expertise uh, in terms of services or online courses or, or products, whatever that is, those were nice things to have. But right now, while you and I are talking, we're in the midst of this lockdown and people are still trying to figure out, you know, what do we, how do we reopen? The only businesses that are doing well are the ones that have direct access to their customers through typically an email list or some sort of way that they can communicate directly with their customers and that they can pivot their business model. I mean, so they're not heavily, they're not whole, solely dependent upon, uh, you know, a store, a retail store, you know, sitting somewhere. And so now all of a sudden people are saying, and I think this is, this is true, that there's no going back, right? Because right. there's a lot of places that are saying, well, you know, yeah, sure. Once all this blows over, we'll reopen our physical location, but we're not dependent upon that anymore. I mean, I know businesses that are saying that are really saying right now because they don't know when they'll get to reopen. They're just saying, well, what if we don't get to, let's just plan our business as if it's completely digital. And those are the businesses that are doing well, because in the midst of an economic crisis where a lot of businesses are doing, are suffering horribly, there's a lot of other businesses that are doing very well. I mean, it's not all negative. And so I think that that's something that's what a platform really is, is it's your ability to communicate and to sell and to fulfill products and services directly to your customers without having to worry about whatever gets in the way. Um, and that's a superpower. And that's something that I think that every business is going to have as part of their strategy. Every business owner is going to have as part of their strategy moving into this new decade. Yeah. Um, I can give them a, a personal example that um, this is a friend of mine, actually, who owns a small business here in Las Vegas. Uh, I would go to his place sometimes and I'd go hang out there because I like the environment. I like the stuff he sells. I'm not going to get any more specific than that. Uh, but let me tell you what he did. He got caught up in that maelstrom of, see, here in Nevada, when we started to go into that closed down stuff, it started with the governor asking nicely if uh, companies could please, out of the goodness out of their heart, so to speak, uh, switch to a model that enforces proper social distancing, which means carry out, pick up, curbside, and online order. Right. We now, had that Tennessee yeah. Right, exactly. Now, what happened is then four days later, our same governor, Steve Sisolak, did another press conference. And this time, and you can go back and watch the footage uh, on YouTube because it was live streamed. You saw him literally pounding his fist on his, um, on, on his lectern. I mean, like, literally doing that, telling people, I'm ordering you, ordering you to close your businesses because we had wow. to scale it up because our, because our curve was starting to go up. And yeah. a lot of these businesses found themselves in a place where they were forced to just completely shut down their operations. Now, what we're seeing in various places or what we have seen in various places is, and this is different from state to state, and uh, I'm not going to get into what Nevada did or didn't do or New York did or didn't do or Pennsylvania did or didn't do or Florida didn't do, do or do or what have you. But in some cases, the states would uh, basically, to put it in one to two sentences, they declared pretty much everything they felt wasn't essential, non-essential. But they set up what was known as a waiver process, where if the business could demonstrate that they could, in detail, continue their operations in a way that didn't require them to actually interact with people, that they could resume that portion of their operations. So what we saw in many places, and you know, my friend also adapted to this, is they didn't really have an online ordering system for their product set up, 
but they got there in a big damn hurry because they discovered that there was a way around the shutdowns that would allow them to continue to serve customers and generate revenue if they could do it all online. So they, you know, they couldn't set up an online store in 12 minutes, but what they could do is log into their WordPress site and spend a long weekend uh, building out a category of all their products and putting pictures and prices on them and then put at the very top of the website, call us for online orders. So within two days, they were able to get the phone ringing and then get to a place where once a day they could go to where they kept their inventory, package up all the orders, ship them out, and they could uh, get back to making money without having to deal with people directly. So I think that once businesses get into the place of being able to market online, even if they're local bricks and mortar, they are not going to retract from it. And they're going to have more need than ever to stand out from a more crowded marketplace looking to engage people to choose their online store over that of their commoditized competitor right down the street, in some cases, literally, who does the exact same thing. Totally. I would agree with that. And just add to two more quick anecdotes on that is that, yeah. you know, who else is doing the same thing? Well, my therapist and my attorney, neither one of them have offered the ability to do a video call, um, you know, for before it's always been like, come into the office. And that's as someone myself who like, I, you know, have worked in the online, you know, content industry for years, I'm used to doing zoom calls for all kinds of stuff. Um, so it was actually, it's kind of like, it was kind of like, I had to kind of coach them in that, but to get my, my attorneys at the point now where he's taking zoom calls and phone calls to different people. And I was the first video session that my therapist had ever done ever for, for counseling. And so yeah. I think that the reality is that once you, once they've stepped into that, because really just the, the biggest, the biggest thing keeping people back is really just learning how to use the software and adopt their business model to launch the online store, to set up the zoom account. But once you've done that, I mean, that's the hard work. And so actually keeping that as part of their business strategy, that's going to stick around for a long time. And so yeah. if you, that, this is why it's so important to differentiate because geography is less important if everybody's online. Instead of, instead of just saying you're a local attorney, now all of a sudden there are you know, 100,000 attorneys online offering consultations over Zoom. So you got to figure out what makes you different. Are you the attorney for, uh, for brick and mortar stores, for retail stores? Are you the attorney for bookstores? Are you the attorney for podcast owners? I mean, like there's so many different ways that you can, you can specialize, but that becomes so much more important when everybody's online because otherwise you're just a face in a list of faces. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're, I think you're accurate about that. And what's also interesting about this is how it creates new opportunities for other businesses. Now it's none of my business and it's none of anybody else's business, what type of therapy you were alluding to, but here's the thing. And I'm speaking this from an industry perspective. Depending on what type of therapy or counseling, whatever it is, it may or may not be covered by HIPAA and other provisions. So there are now new opportunities for companies to deal with things like cybersecurity, patient privacy, yeah. uh, protection of electronic communications, and possibly a place for existing or new companies to emerge with new products that have HIPAA compliance if their previous offerings didn't, because now the demand's gonna be there. A lot of therapists, including some that I know personally, uh, have in fact made that pivot where they've recognized that telemedicine and virtual medicine was how they were gonna be able to do it if they wanted to stay in business. And I know myself, I'll tell you one more personal story of mine, and, uh, and I will violate my own HIPAA here a little bit. You know, um, I don't know how old you are, but, uh, you know, they, um, they say that once you turn 40, you will be assigned a mystery ailment. And just wait till you about 41 <laughs> or 42 and you'll find before. out what it is. Well, if yeah. you're not 40 yet, you'll get there. So I'm not yet. mine 
is every so often I get cellulitis flare-ups in my lower left leg. So I have recurring cellulitis. Mm. It's, uh, I've gone through the test. It's not blood clotting. There's nothing coronary going on. It's, uh, it's, not, uh, it's not a manifestation of diabetes. I mean, we went through all those different tests and we found out that it's just recurring cellulitis, which actually is not an uncommon thing. Knowing what it is, I, don't, I shouldn't have to go to a doctor and go through $900 of testing every single time for them to tell me once again what I already know. Uh, anybody who heard the word cellulitis understands, that, or who've experienced cellulitis, understands that the standard treatment is you get put on antibiotics for 10 days, and it should clear up within those 10 days. If it does not, then you go to your doctor and you go through the $900 of tests. So I know that when I get it, and it's usually once, maybe twice a year, it doesn't happen very often, uh, all I need is a script, man. So once my health insurance provider finally got on board with telemedicine, when this stuff happens, I just, I just dial in and I uh, speak with a, a professional who's able to, um, you know, who's able to uh, prescribe common things like basic antibiotics. I, you know, I, I set up the appointment. Uh, I take pictures of my leg and upload them. I wait the 15 minutes for them to come online. They ask me the usual questions and they give me the lecture about how, how I should see a doctor and then they write the script and tell me to go pick it up. 35 bucks. And to well, me, yeah. and to me, that increases availability of health services to people. And it also reduces cost burden of health services, which I believe in the long run will help make more health care accessible to more people. We're always trying to make health care more accessible to more people. We want to do universal health care, Medicare for all. We want to lower prescription costs. We want to lower insurance costs. We want to make insurance cross-state portable. Uh, but you heard me say over and over again the word costs. So now you're getting a sense of what the inhibitor is. So what I'm seeing here, and I want to see if you have any other thoughts on this, is how does creating more engaged online audiences help with the cost factor of being in business in general, any industry? Well, that's an interesting question. I think that um, the biggest change is really just uh, is that you have direct access to your customers. And yeah. so historically, you, um, there was, there were, there's always been gatekeepers that you had to go through, right? So if you wanted to, um, you know, like, let's just say that you wanted to get your, your product in stores. I mean, maybe, maybe only 50 years ago, you were like, oh man, this is great. I've got this super cool, uh, you know, it's like, it's a super cool pen. Like it's a really nice, beautiful pen. And yeah. I really want to get it in people's hands. Well, you're gonna have to go down, go down and sit down with the, you know, whoever the local buyer is for Sears or JC Penney and convince them to sell your product. And if they say no, you're kind of out of luck, right? Yeah. I mean, this was, this yeah. was a very recent thing. And we take it for granted today that the gatekeepers are all gone. And the reality is some of the gatekeepers are still there. They're just in disguise, right? So, you know, their names are, are Facebook, Google, Twitter. There are these like middlemen who uh, give you access to an audience. But here's a, here's a hint. Here's a secret for you. If you're using something and it's free, you are the product. So if yeah. you're using social media, you are the product. The only reason why it's free is because you're kind of sharing, basically you're saying like, look, I'll give you my attention. And that's valuable. And so I think today what, what, allowed, what, what was possible when you build an audience online is that you have direct access to your customers. You don't have to worry about a gatekeeper. You can self-publish a book and sell it to them. You can sell an online course. 
You can sell, you can sell physical products. You can ship it directly to them and you know, they can send you money. I mean, like this is, it's crazy. Like we do this every day and we really just take it for granted, but it is insane how easy it is to run a business today compared to just 30, 40 or 50 years ago, let alone 500. We don't even need to compare that. It's just a whole other world. Yeah. I think that, I think you raise a good point there. If it's for free, you are the product, which is why it amazes folks when they see so much stuff given away for free by companies. And mm -hmm. it's, and, and sometimes, you know, you know what, it's okay to be the product because here's how I look at it. If you are the product, let's say you uh, go to a company and you consume something that they offer and you do it for free. And let's say, I'm gonna use a simple example that a lot of our listeners understand. You create some sort of special reporter download. As people sign in, they opt in, they download it, they take what you recommend, they use it and it works. Well, now you're enlisting a sales force who are going to tell other people about you. Just like you mentioned earlier in the example of the coffee shop, you don't walk in saying, hey guys, I got a case study. But if you happen to fall in conversation with some of the other people who are there and you see they have a problem and you're aware of a solution because you as the product have had that solution for yourself, you're going to tell them about it. Totally. Well, yeah. And in that example, you've got, you know, an army of people working on your behalf to spread the good news about what you're, you know, about what you're all about. And so yeah. actually it's interesting you brought the coffee shop back up again, because I had this thought just kind of like while we were talking that yeah. if I were to go back to that example, and let's just say you do have a case study. I mean, let's say you literally do have a case study and you want to get into the hands of people. Well, you can still do that. You can still walk into a coffee shop and get into the hands of people, but you're not going to do that by walking in and saying, Hey, here's my case study. You're going to look for the conversations that are already going on that are related to your topic. And so maybe you're, like I mentioned earlier, maybe there's that painting contractor who's at the bar of the coffee shop talking about how he's trying to get in front of new people. And you say, Hey, you know what? I've actually got this case study here. That's all about how he did that for a plumber. And I know the plumber's not the same thing as a painter, but probably I bet you this would work for you too. Here's a copy of the case study, right? So you didn't lead with the case study you led with. Here's how this can help you. Um, but that's, that's just how conversation works. I mean, that's how people, the reality is even online, you're talking to people, they're human beings. And so you just got to remember that a thousand followers is a thousand people. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that, that's, that's also the thing too. And uh, you, you know, people get excited over what I like to call vanity metrics. Oh, I have 10,000 subscribers. My next question is what are your open rates? Uh, right. Well, 4%. And so then my next question is, is do you have an email marketing software that allows you to use metrics, animations, automations to bifurcate between the people who are actually opening your emails versus those who aren't? Uh, well, let's, let's say they say yes. I say, are you using them? Usually at this point they say no. So I say, work with your email provider and set that stuff up. And then when you begin sending your broadcasts, send two copies of the broadcast. One to the people who are identified as engaged and one who are identified as the people who are not. What tends to happen, and we've done this many times ourselves with our company and our clients, is you will then, since you have two segments, when you send out the two broadcasts, you'll notice that now you have the one segment where you're getting 40 and 50% open rates, which by the way, is awesome for deliverability because it tells Gmail and those other providers that your stuff is so relevant, it should probably be in the inbox tab instead of the promotions tab, that's number one. Number mm -hmm. two is that other list, all the people that you, uh, your metrics told you were not engaged, you're still gonna get your three or 4% off of them.
It's funny how that works, but we've seen it time and time again. So what you're doing is now you're figuring out of all these 10,000, as you accurately describe, people, who's leaning in right now? And what's yeah. better yet is if you want to create new segments, you can then figure out who engaged from your engagement category and also who engaged from your non-engagement category. And you can build another tag of recent engagers. And then you can do the same bifurcation until you really narrow down how big your list actually is. And you, and my, what I've seen happen is over time, people find that they see their sales go up because more of the people who need to be reached because they're paying attention will be reached and will take action because you've optimized your system around cutting through the chaff and getting to the bottom of what do all those likes, comments, and opens mean. Yeah, I would agree with that, Adam. And if I can just add one thing of where I think a lot of people go wrong on this whole email marketing thing, which yeah. we haven't talked about extensively, but that's really the core of building a platform. Is Let's, building you, know, you know what? We have, about, we have about eight minutes here. Let's get into email marketing. It's, uh, okay. it's the one thing that will never die. Tell me your thoughts. Sure. Well, the first thing is it's the one thing that, uh, well, I don't know if it'll never die, but it, it hasn't died in over 20 years. So right. <laughs> I think that's a, good, that's a good bet. So maybe 100 years from now won't be relevant, but 10 years from now, I bet you it will be. Um, so email marketing is really important, but I need to tie this back to what we were just talking about about Please. talking to, to people, right? Because a lot of people make this mistake where, the, where you tell them, okay, you need to use email marketing to grow your business. And they say, okay, okay, I'll send an email blast. Uh -huh. You'll send a blast? Friends don't blast friends. People <laughs> don't blast people. That's not a good thing, right, Adam? Oh, oh, I put people on blast, but it's usually not good. It's usually not good. <laughs> so go, go, going back to your point, do you want to blast the people you want to have love you? Exactly. Well, and the reality is what you want to do is you want to write, even if you're sending that email, well, okay, first of all, you're not going to be starting by sending it to 10,000 people, but even if you're sending it to 10 people, you want to write that email as if you're writing it to one. Because even if you're sending it to 10 people or 100 people or 1,000 people, they don't get in a conference room and put your email up on the, on the whiteboard or up on the screen and read it together as a group. They yeah. each read it individually. And so you need to write your email like, hey, Adam, and I'm not just saying like insert the name thing. I mean, that's kind of a, that's a, that's a, at this point, it's a very basic func uh, like automation thing that you can do a personalization thing you can do in email marketing. I'm really just talking about the way you write the email is as if you're talking to one person, just like you would, if you weren't logged in to Con ConvertKit or MailChimp or Infusionsoft or AWeber or whatever, if you were just logged into Gmail or Outlook and you were writing an email to a friend, how would you write it? Or to a colleague, how would you write it? Use those same techniques and those same skills to apply to the emails that you write to promote your business. And you are going to immediately see that those stand out from kind of like the, you know, the newsletter style, uh, you know, over formal emails that talk to people in the, in the plural. Like, you know, if you get an email in your, in your inbox, that's just like, I'm talking to, you know, in, in thinking about all of you and Adam, there's only one of you, right? <laughs> only one of you reads the email. And At so that's moment, Yeah. At this moment, right. <laughs> yeah, if I, if, I, if I need to brand who the listener is, I, I might say something like um, social media professionals, comma, like you, comma. I mean, right. if I need to do that branding, but at least I find a way to pull out that I am getting to an individual person. Totally, exactly. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's really, that's really key and fundamental. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think the reality is like, so, you know, Facebook, Twitter, I'm not trying to make this my crusade against social media, but no, it's okay if it comes across that way. Um, all these platforms, you know, people get mad when every year or every couple of years or every 18 months, 
or every six months, they change the algorithm, right? And so it used to be a long time ago, if you had 100 followers on Facebook and you posted something, this may sound crazy, but it used to be 100 people saw it, right? Yep. If 100 people followed you, 100 people saw it. I was around for that. You were? Okay, yeah. good. Yeah, so us OGs in the internet. You know, <laughs> um, but the reality is today, I mean, it's like you're lucky. If, you po- if 100 people follow you and you post something on Facebook, you're lucky if four people see it. Yeah. Like not just comment and like and share on it. I'm talking about see it. The rest of them don't even know that you posted something unless you tell them. And yeah. so um, social, that's because you're the product, right? It's a free platform. And so they figured out that they can kind of like gradually give you less and less organic exposure yeah. and charge you more and more money for ads. And they can just say, well, you know, you want to reach those hundred people. That's fine. Just pay us some money. And if you pay us some money, we'll get it in front of maybe 40 of those hundred people. They still won't let you get hundred um, uh-huh. percent. But uh, so I think that's why email is so different because with an email, it's like having someone's home address, right? Their email address is being able to have direct access to them. Sure. And sure, you still have to go through like a, you know, some kind of sort of client like Gmail or Outlook uh, and they have their own algorithms, but it's right. nowhere similar, right? Because people aren't, I mean, it's still primarily designed to be a communication platform that that's how the, the world runs on email. I mean, that's how business is done. Oh, and Adam, one more thing I'll share on that is just that if, you, if anybody's listening, if they're like, I don't know, John, email seems kind of like, like an out of, you know, isn't email dead? I read that somewhere. I dare you to go create a social media account without an email address. It's the first thing they ask for. I dare you to create anything without an email address. I mean, anything. Oh, and, oh, and, oh, and if it's one of those opt-ins uh, or, those, or those things, and I know Facebook has moved into this, where you can create the account based on your mobile telephone number, guess what's behind that? An email address. Yep, yep. Yeah, yeah, very, yeah. I'd like to single out one thing just real quickly since, uh, you know, we, you touched on, uh, you know, is email dead, also social media dead, and you want us to make sure that we understood that John Meese is not opposed to social media. He's not saying social media is dead. So I just want to make you repeat that for you. Correct. Um, I have, I'm going to single out Facebook pages, although this may be the case with all of them to some degree, but this is just the one where I've seen it the most. I have various Facebook business pages for various arms of my business and such. And, uh, and I, at least as of this writing, I might change my mind this in the future, although based on what I've said on other episodes, I probably won't, but who knows? I don't spend money on advertising to post there. I don't, I don't care. Uh, most of those pages have less than 100 followers. I could give a rat's ass about that either, candidly. I'll tell you why I have those, because that helps me see who is developing an interest in my business so that I have an idea out of all my fans and followers, which are the ones that are actually paying attention to my business. That's number one. And number two, and I'm singling out Facebook business pages, although you know maybe the case with many of the others, they get indexed by search engines, both for the page itself and for the individual posts. So I recognize that I have a very important follower on my social media business pages, which is the search engines. Yeah, that's interesting. I haven't, uh, I would say I've gone back and forth on this too. Yeah. Um, but I, but I, but like, well, like for example, like I own a coworking space, which side note, <laughs> I opened a coworking space 58 days before the global lockdown. <laughs> Isn't that just the way? Yeah, I know. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I've got other online income streams, so I'm fine, but I mean, yeah. the, it's still, it's still a blow of course. I mean, but um, I'm just diversified. So that's yeah. the whole side. But for that business, we, we, we debated this. And so we actually, we did open, 
We did create a Facebook page for the Cowork Columbia, the coworking space, but I'm pretty sure I'm going to delete it. And here's why, because you're right, Adam, people who love you and love your brand and are, are your best potential customers, they're going to like and follow you everywhere. Right. Yeah. And search engines do feature your social media accounts, like your Facebook page. But here's the thing. If it's not part of your core marketing strategy where you're devoting most of your time and attention, if, is it really the best reflection of your brand? Like right now, if you were to right. go on the Cowork Columbia Facebook page, you would see a few posts and you would notice that most of them don't have a lot of comments and likes. Right. And you would also, like you would see that we don't have a ton of followers on, on, fa on Facebook. I don't even know how many we have, but that's right. because it's not our focus. And so yeah. if that's all you see, you actually don't get a very good representation of our company and where we're at. Right, yeah, yeah. and let me be clear about what I said. Um, me engaging in those activities, and I'm saying this so everybody knows, it's a byproduct. Um, it's, it's a byproduct of things we've otherwise already created. And it's just another way to reach things we're already reaching in other ways. So, I mean, if you can, yeah. if I can turn that into six front page Google search results, instead of the five, I would have gotten without it. That's one more in the top 10. I mean that, and that's about as much energy as I put into it. Totally. But I'm, well, yeah. And I, and I'm an essentialist. I ascribe to Greg McEwen's philosophy of essentialism of less, yeah. but better. And so that's why I would say, well, like, I don't know. What is your Facebook page for? And if it's for your search results, then sure, great. Optimize it for that. But make sure as soon as someone lands on your Facebook page, you have a very clear strategy for how you're directing them to go elsewhere to either, you know, watch your YouTube videos or join your email list or buy your products. Exactly. Um, okay. Yeah. So I, as long as it's really just what I want people to do is I don't want people to dismiss social media across the board. I want social media to go back on the shelf where it belongs alongside every single other marketing strategy. So then when you say, okay, I'm ready to grow my business, you look up on the shelf and you decide which tool you want to get down and you want to use to build your business. And social media, by the way, is not a tool. It's a category. And within social media, you have a bunch of different tools. You have Facebook. And even within Facebook, you have groups, you have pages, you have, then you have Instagram, then you have Snapchat, TikTok, Instagram. I'm probably forgetting some. I think Periscope still exists. There's Twitter. MySpace is still out there. Surprise, surprise. So these did are you all say, different. Did you say LinkedIn? Oh, I didn't say LinkedIn. I'm sorry. You, I did you, not mean to leave out LinkedIn. You didn't say LinkedIn, but you mentioned I, Instagram twice. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I love LinkedIn. So I apologize to LinkedIn. But all, my point is that you then choose which of those tools to get down. And I don't think it's a good strategy to get every single thing off the shelf and say, you know what? I'm yep. going to try to build this, my business using every tool possible. No, I want to get really good at using one tool really well or two tools really well to yep. grow my business. And then maybe you can expand in the future, but I wouldn't start with everything because you're just going to be scattered. Exactly. And John, I got to tell you, we are on the razor's edge of 60 minutes here to the point where I have to say that is the perfect place to leave off with uh, information on how to build an engaged online audience and turn the floor over to you for a few seconds. Uh, for those who are leaning in wanting more, what's your next step? Thank you, Adam. I appreciate you keeping us on time. So go to yeah. platformuniversity.com slash BCR as in Business Creators Radio. And we've got a, a page right there that includes several free resources that I put together, including an online income checklist, which is a seven-step action plan to quickly generate revenue from a blog, vlog, or podcast today. So there you go. I'll leave you with that. All right. Well, thank you so much. And I do encourage our listeners to go to Business Creators Radio Show and subscribe because this one is loaded with insights that you can ponder and decide for yourself what make the most sense for you as you build an, on, an engaged online audience. So I want to thank John Meese, the Dean of Michael Hyatt's Platform University. And yes, his name is John Meese, not Michael Hyatt, for being <laughs> with us here today. It's been an honor and an education. Well, it's my pleasure, Adam. Thank you so much for having me. 
We trust you've enjoyed today's episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. Check out our previous and upcoming episodes on our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. While you're there, be sure to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. Until next time, have a great day. Take care.